Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Jonathan Cuartas. He is an editor, writer, and director whose debut feature film, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, was the highest-reviewed horror movie on Rotten Tomatoes in 2021, my, one of my personal top 10 favorites of 2021, and is currently streaming on Shudder. Welcome to the show! Thank you. We're so excited, excited to, talk to be to you. here. Before we do get into the interview portion, I mean, how cool is that? Debuting, and you have, like, the highest, I checked it today again, the highest-rated movie horror movie in 2021 how how amazing it's it's like it's full (laughs) imposter syndrome i'm like no that's not that's not right like it's like it's like when they curve the test for you that's how i feel it's definitely we'll we'll talk about your movie in a minute but it's definitely definitely worthy of, of that and i was i was really happy to see a small independent film beating out some of the big dogs that's that's fucking awesome yeah, thank you. If you, it's very surreal for my brother and I, and and yeah, I mean, such a great pool of films to be included in. It just feels wild. Like even the independent stuff, the big stuff. It was just like it an really amazing was. year for horror. But speaking of horror, let's take it back to the beginning. How did you get introduced to the horror genre? Whether that's books, movies. How how were you introduced? I think it stemmed from first like a love for cinema, just loving movies. And I was really scared of films as a child. Like I was very scared of horror. Like whenever I would, whenever my parents or my older brother would play like Resident Evil or something, I would just run away. And I remember watching from upstairs, like through, through the guardrails, like peeking Uh down at the TV. But I was, I, for some reason I was just so scared and I was scared of lightning and thunder and just, 
I, I just didn't know how to differentiate like special effects mm. makeup from real life. It just affected me in a very intense way. And so it's funny, but I, I never really got into the classics like Texas Chainsaw or Halloween. I didn't watch those films till oh, wow. I was like in my 20s. Like it was never something that was a part of my diet growing up. I think it was just like little VHS tapes here and there that my parents would just have. Like I watched 48 Hours all the time. I watched this movie called The Deep. That's a very obscure 70s movie. But um, yeah, that, that was sort of how it started. It was It was through the fear of it all that became a curiosity in my teen years. And then I started to really explore like the horror canon of watching like Hellraiser and all these, these classics. Cool. Do you remember the first horror movie you ever saw? I, I feel like the first one that I saw was Leprechaun. Like that's one that's, that really stayed with me. And, and then it, the, of course the, the one with Tim Curry, but again, it was like, I, I feel like I have flashes of horror movies because I think I would just like leave the room or I would watch behind my like my hands like covering my eyes so it's just like fragments of horror films that i remember and not so much like the storyline so i remember mm. pieces of Candyman, but then when i re rewatched it as an adult i was like i i don't even remember this plot at all it was just like the images of right. tony todd uh, and you also mentioned um your family playing like resident evil so did, did were you introduced to horror through video games as well then well, I, that was oh, the, the actually oh, the movie oh, oh, version okay. that they made, but yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I was aware of those video games too, and I, you know, I would play like Killer Instinct and Mortal Kombat. So I think it was like whenever it was a video game, it didn't affect me because it was just fun, and it was like PlayStation, Nintendo. But then when it was a movie, it just yeah. became too real for me for some reason, and that's what stayed with me. Was the rest of your family a big horror people? I think my, my dad just, like, loves movies. Like, he'll watch novelas, like, really bad novelas, and then watch, like, very, like, prestige dramas and then, like, miniseries all over the place. So it's just, like, a love for the movies and the movie theater. Like, we would go all the time, like, twice a week growing up. Like, every week we would be there at least three or two or three times. But now that I remember, I don't know if you remember those videos – that became a sen- sensation where it was like a pop-up, like a face would pop out at you. Like, like you're looking at a Where's oh, Waldo yes. thing and then a face just pops up. I remember my dad showed my brothers and I that. And for some reason, I just didn't take it well. Oh. Like I started crying and it affected me really bad. And whenever my brother would turn it on, the music would start and I knew that it was coming on and I would literally just run out of the house. Like I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I remember one of those that was like, it had like a car in the background. It was driving around a curvy road and there was like this light, very like classical, almost like music calming you down. And as the car was cresting around from this corner, a zombie pops up and goes, ah, is that the kind of thing like those? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. It was like that, yeah. Those videos. Those are the worst. Yes. It's not like that. That era of the internet. <laughs> I'm glad that era of the internet is gone for the most part. Yeah. It's it was a strange time, but you know, it was it was a way to like introduce you to jump scares, I guess. And now it doesn't really affect me, but it was something that's really scared the shit out of me as a kid. So what was the movie that you saw that got you like kind of like your gateway into realizing 
your curiosity for horror more than fear? Because I know you said you were a little bit older. So was there a movie in particular that kind of served as that turning point for you? You know, it was very much like that wave of horror films, like in the early 2000s when you had The Ring and you had The Grudge, where it became more like it was stepping away from these traditional slasher movies and it was becoming more about something about a ghost and about these these hauntings. And I think that's when I got interested in it. I just love the idea of like possession and, and something taking over your body. And I think that started to resonate with me more as a teenager, but I never really made the connection to wanting to be a filmmaker until very much later in college when I started taking film courses. And it was never really a specific interest in horror. I think when I made my first short film, we just made a horror because it felt the easiest to do. Like we, my brother and I thought, well, suspense is free. Like to create suspense, we don't have to pay for that. It's just about building dread. And then it just started to be, become a, a genre that we gravitated towards. And so what draws you to the genre now, like as an adult, both as a viewer and a filmmaker? Because obviously you've gone through kind of a transformation to it for, gone through a transformation with it. So what draws you to it now? I think what draws me to it now, which is probably what drew me to it at the beginning of my career subconsciously, was just the connection to fear and my relationship with fear throughout my life and how I've experienced certain things and experience the death of loved ones and how that can be talked about through a genre that's like filtered through fun. I feel like there's a way to access entertainment or a way to talk about certain things without necessarily hitting them so much on the head. You can use archetypes like vampires or werewolves to talk about things that you've experienced or, or political points or historical observations and and i think that's very fun to kind of use the facade of horror to talk about things that are important to you but without maybe being so literal and i and i think that that's what i love about it I now love and i love when people talk about that because i i think a lot of times people particularly outside of the genre see genres like you know slashers or blood or guts or all this kind of stuff but don't realize how you can attach it to almost anything and make like a, a point that isn't like you said hitting people over the head with it and you can do things in such an interesting metaphorical way and i love that about horror so i'm, I'm really glad to hear that and i think you can see that sort of in the movie that, yeah. that you made to, uh, that we're going to talk about soon but um do you still get scared because i know you mentioned that when you were a kid you were terrified with movies do you still get scared watching horror movies no now it's funny it's like the reverse like now i never get scared i feel like there's, it's very rare that I that something scares me in the theater or in the actual viewing experience. I, I remember um, Hereditary was one that stayed with me after the theater and as above, Ooh. so below. And maybe like a little bit earlier when I was a teenager, The Grudge stayed with me as a kid. You know, the, like oh, the that, blanket that gags. But yeah, there aren't like the films that stay with me now, I feel like they're just heavier and almost existential horror where it makes me think about death, which I feel like that's just my biggest fear. So anything that's dealing with death or the cycle of death or impending death is what scares me now. So, okay. So however, everyone says hereditary when we ask them that question, which is so funny, but like mm -hmm. it is though, like it was the last, it was like one of the last movies that like, was terrifying to everybody. Like, it did not matter how 
yeah. diehard of a genre fan you were. Like, that stuck with everybody. And still does. I still think about that movie yeah. all the time. <laughs> but Mary Beth, he also said, as above, so below. He will also said, above, so below. I'm a huge found footage person. And that movie actually got me really into found footage, like fulls, like really, really into it. And I just, I love that movie so much. It's just so good. <laughs> it's funny because I, I'm not a found footage person. And when I started watching it, I was kind of like, ah, oh, I don't know if I want to sit through this, but just the imagery and the way that it, it kind of personifies hell and these catacombs was just like very disturbing to me. Um, but I think another yeah. one is the Babadook. I think if I saw the Babadook in, in a theater, it would have stayed with me a lot more, but it was still one that that I really enjoyed and it really scared me, particularly the short version of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen the short. I think it's called Monster or something, but I just Ooh. think the creature was much more scary in the short. Cool. And then, so those are the ones that have scared you, but what are your favorites as an adult? Like favorite horror movies that you really enjoy, have enjoyed recently? I love the the horror movies that are connected to characters, like character studies, like The Eyes of My Mother was one that I saw. I went into it blind at a film festival and I loved it because it was just a beautiful take on horror. It's like the most fucked up thing (laughs) I've ever seen, but it's so pretty and so good, but it's so disturbing. It's like you're you're under a spell the whole time and everything looks so beautiful, but at the same time, it's horrific and it's like terrifying. And I think it, it draws back to my love for Eyes Without a Face. It has like a similar texture. It's in black and white. It's very lyrical. And those are the films that I love now. Like A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is another one. But then there are films that are just fun, like Train to Busan, um, I really like The Lodge and Goodnight Mommy. There's just so many. I, I think I like all different camps of horror too. Like I, I love a good art house movie, but then I love like a very broad horror film too. Okay, so continuing with that on the creative side, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To is about? Yeah, it's about uh, two siblings who have to take care of their younger brother who is afflicted with a mysterious illness that I would say is pretty straightforward in the beginning, revealed to be a case of vampirism. So in order to keep him alive, they have to procure human blood for him, which consists of murdering people on the streets and homeless people, uh, illegal immigrants, sex workers, in order to feed their brother. So it deals with the existential trauma of the older brother and sister, But at the same time, the younger brother's perspective of having to be stuck at home and essentially not able to make any friends. It's It's very sad. sad. But it's so good. (laughs) I'm curious. So, like, where did this idea sort of come from for you for this movie? How was it born? So this is, again, like drawing back to what I was saying about talking about specific things about my life experience through the lens of horror. This was an experience that I had in 2016 when my my grandmother from my dad's side, she was in hospice, and my dad is the youngest of 10 siblings, so it was a bunch of people in a house, pretty small house, and my grandmother was in the room, and we knew that she was going to pass, and it was just the way that I experienced watching and witnessing and being a part of, too, the way that we took care of her, the way that we all behaved around each other, all the different personalities within one family. 
And so it was an interesting thing for me to experience and also seeing the way that my grandma um, still had love for all of us and we all had love for each other. So it was like this dichotomy between the tension and the love that families have for one another when placed in a situation like this. And so I thought, what is the right archetype? What is the right monster to talk about this? And the cyclical nature of blood and the sacrifice that families make for one another, I thought vampirism would be a good way to look at it. So that's how it came to be. It's like it's a, it's a deeply personal movie for you. Very much so, yeah. I think a lot all my scripts are come from a very personal place. Like my form of research is just being there or asking my family about their experiences and about their stories. That's what I like to do most. As I feel like it's an emotional research is what I like. Yeah, because I, I was thinking is I because I, I, I we saw Mary Beth and I both well I, I don't Mary Beth you didn't did, when did you see this film for the first time was it last year yeah because I, I remember seeing this um I think <laughs> I watched it on Shutter I think I watched it on Shutter I, I think it premiered it was it at Nightstream or was it it was it was all weird because of COVID it was supposed to premiere at Tribeca in 2020 but then it that was kind of like the big premiere in the U S was so stream. I remember yeah. seeing it back then. And, and, and so I re and it's been, it had been a minute. So I rewatched it this last week and I was like, man, this movie obviously comes from, from a place of, of heart and an understanding of what it goes through to care for someone who is sick. And I, so like hearing that story, it makes perfect sense that, that, that this is pulling from your life. Cause it's uh that shines through that heart and that emotion it like it got me again this weekend as I was watching it because just it's just so it's so good. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, all my family's from Colombia. Both of my parents are from there. All my grandparents, and it's just you know we come from a big Catholic family where family is like the top priority. So I've always looked at everything through a familial lens. So that's why for me even to the point of it being siblings. Like I've heard a lot of people ask like, where are the parents? And I never even thought of that because I have two brothers on the middle sibling. And it's just always been this dynamic where it's like a triangle of brothers in this case, one sister. But I always just, I always relate to, to stories about siblings for some reason. Like it, it resonates with me a lot. Like movies like dog tooth resonate with me a lot. And so that's where it came from. That's where the sibling dynamic came from. Yeah, and what I liked uh, on this on this rewatch is is the fact that um, both. I mean, first of all, the cast is is phenomenal, um, and Patrick uh, Fugit Fugit is that how you say his last name? Yeah, he puts Fugit. out such a great yeah. performance. Like I, it's it was so weird because I maybe like two or three weeks ago I had rewatched Saved just on a lark, which he is in. Oh my god, it's incredible! So good, but to go to see him in that <laughs> yeah. as like this kind of baby faced, you know, young young actor to like yeah. the, this man it's like it it's always surprising me when i when i see him in this movie and he gives such a phenomenal performance but so does um ingrid and so does owen like the, their dynamic you can kind of see how destructive but hopeful and helpful each of the three people are in this situation that is not uh, not an ideal situation to be to be put in of course yeah i think each character personifies like an amalgamation of certain relatives in my family. So it's like different personalities poured into each character and different um, opinions on how to deal with the situation. But yeah, the, the cast is like 
I'm just incredibly blessed with this for my first film. Like it, it, it really hinges a lot of the movie hinges on their performance and the performances that they were able to give us were just incredible. And the fact that all three of them were kind of transforming into different versions of themselves. Like I know Patrick Fugit has changed a lot, obviously over the course of his career, he's gotten older from like almost famous and the, the kid we knew from that movie. But at the same time, he like really got, he got like bigger and his beard was, was big and, and, and it was long and he had like bad posture. He was just down to go physical transformation. And of course, Owen's physicality was very important. And we were, um, our script supervisor was a physical therapist and we were talking about how someone who perhaps was elderly, like my grandmother would walk with like shuffling her feet instead of a limp. So it was a lot of just like um, hammering down those details in order to give, give it like, it's almost like their character act character roles, but it's not caricature. We wanted it to still feel like it's grounded, but very heightened at the same time. Yeah. And so like, what was it like to work with all three of them? And like, how did that kind of relationship how did they foster this really, or were they just so super talented? Cause I'm just curious because it's really only the three of them. So I'm just curious how that relation, like those relationships were so solid and how they kind of came together to make this incredible chemistry between the three of them. Interestingly enough, like they're, they're just super talented. We only had one table read the very night before we didn't have any auditions. No, I mean, no rehearsals. We just went straight into it, but it, it's funny how it worked out because the we had an Airbnb for all three of them, but then Patrick ended up staying somewhere else because he's actually from Salt Lake City, which is where we shot. So he stayed with his wife, and he was separated from Owen and Ingrid, which it's kind of that's the way it is in the film. Like So they were spending all this time together, and they were kind of doing running scenes, and they had this big Airbnb to themselves. And so they were kind of fostering this chemistry and this friendship, this relationship and this bond that was so important. And Patrick was doing his own thing. And, you know, the chemistry, everyone was friends on set, but I, I feel like that, that adds to the dynamic. And then, you know, we just had a lot of conversations on set. Like after every take, we would just like have intimate conversations. And it was just like a lot of back and forth and understanding and trying to, break certain things down and certain emotions. And for Patrick, we had a, a decay scale because we were shooting like out of order. We didn't have the money to shoot chronologically. So we were like, okay, where are you here? Like what injuries do you have? How is your psyche? So we had like a decay scale where we would be like, okay, you're like almost at your lowest point here. And then we would jump to the beginning. So he just had to like snap into different like levels of of degradation and it was just incredible to watch all three of them work you know one of the things okay so jesse is a character like she does something pretty horrific in the in the beginning of the film uh in order to keep dwight at home with with her and her and her sibling and that moment is like such a, a punchy moment but somehow even after that you can start to, what what i love about the script is that you can start to see her as, as a human and, and really almost kind of forgive her for doing what she did because of the whole situation. And I just think that that's, what's so interesting about this script. How did, how did you, um, I'm just curious how, how you managed to pull that kind of 
reversal with her because again i was like i and rewatching it this this weekend i was like oh i really don't like her for doing this this is like kind of manipulative and mean and then by the end <laughs> of the movie i'm like oh my gosh i'm so sad it's it's so strange because i i feel like i i treated every character as a person like the victims mm-hmm. and the hunters i feel like i never judge them for being in their circumstances. Like I just thought that they're just dealing with it in the way that they see as best. And I think because I was coming at it from, I guess, an allegorical way through family, I never saw her committing that specific murder that you're talking about as something that would make me hate her. Of course, I feel like it's completely Mm -hmm. fucked up and it's not, it's, it's like very barbaric in a way, but I just see her as completely devoted to her family and for her to do that just shows how devoted she is to giving everything to her brothers. And it just proves her unconditional love to them. Even if it's misguided, even if it's fucking (laughs) messed up, but I, I just approached it all. Like I felt like I cared for every character. Like I cared for Eduardo, the immigrant. I cared for the sex worker. I cared for everyone. And I think when I approached it like that, uh, maybe that comes through my my sympathy for each of them, um, but I'm also aware that some people tell me they're like I fucking hate her, like I want her to die the whole movie, and some people tell me that it that that's their favorite character, and I I feel like I kind of agree because her devotion is like unparalleled. Um, the morals are all crumbled away, but at the same time, this is a horror film, so for me to I'm not necessarily judging her in this world, no, it does. if that makes sense. I was I was also thinking about um, when I was rewatching this, and you kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. Is that it's really about vulnerable people because the people that they that they choose as victims are all vulnerable people in society. Meanwhile, they're dealing with a very vulnerable sick person at home, and there's a lot of a lot of cross in between there. Yeah, I think it's interesting because. Normally when you see movies, it's like the rich feeding on the poor. But I, I felt like these this family's on the fringe of society. They're a poor white family. But they're feeding on other people who are also on the fringe of society. In this case, an immigrant. You know, they're pushed aside. Maybe they're they're not they're not deemed as valuable by the United States. Like most people think, oh, that they're just like castaways. And then, of course, sex workers are, are looked down upon a lot. And and then homeless people, you know, they're treated like I, – I even read articles where they would just like cram homeless people in vans and like drive them out somewhere and no one would bat an eye because they're like, oh, they're just cleaning the streets. So it almost shows how we dehumanize all these people and – maybe the three siblings just thought like, these are the people we need to go after. It's the same kind of people that we are the same people that people are just forgetting about us and they won't even ask questions about. So that's where that came from. And it was a way to introduce like an, a subplot of an immigrant because my parents both immigrated here from Colombia. So just calling back to these like different kinds of people in my life again. I'll tell you the moment that broke my heart the most on this rewatch was actually, um, is is it El, or Eduardo? Is that is that his name? Yeah, yeah. His, Eduardo, yeah. When yeah, when they find the the picture of a of a younger man in there, and, and he's asking, "Is that his son?" And it, his statement about, 
no, this is the person I was supposed to meet here. And he never showed to like help him that moment. Like, it's like, Ooh, you can just see with so, so little lines, you can just see a whole story that is played out. And I, I just, I love it when, when scripts are able to do that and just pull out so much character with so little, so little time. Yeah. I, I always thought that, that, you know, that was a comment on the American dream and how it's like an illusion sometimes because, you know, he came here with the aspiration of making it, whatever that means. And obviously it ended up very badly for him in an even supernatural way. And so for me, it was, it was that, but it was also like to show the miscommunication that, that they go through. Like he down to the very language, like Dwight wasn't even understanding what he was saying, but they almost find like a friendship within themselves because they're so alone but even when they don't understand each other, it's like their company is enough. Um, so I thought that, the, that it was a lot to play with. I almost wish like the movie diverted to this character completely because I feel like he was a good character to follow. But fun fact, the the guy in the picture is actually my dad when oh, he shit. came to Miami oh, in the God. 80s. So that wow. yeah, that's, that's an old picture. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, a lot of people who a lot of people who know me, it just takes them out of the film. <laughs> so like you were so into it in that scene, but they're like, "Wait, that's your dad, right?" <laughs> wow. That's um, okay. Well, we have talked about your horror history, and we've talked about your incredible film. But Jonathan, what movie have you brought with you today as Guardian for Life? I brought kind of a movie, but it's more like a mini series. It's called Storm of the Century. Hell yeah. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar, <laughs> a Storm of the Century is about a dangerous blizzard that isolates a town. Or blah, blah, blah. Let me try that again. Um, a dangerous blizzard hits an isolated town and brings along a mysterious... Intri- <laughs> Why can't I talk today? A mysterious stranger intent on terrorizing people for his own desires. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Jonathan, all we, we need to know, when did you see this movie? How did you see it? What about it is your Scarred for Life moment? We want to know everything. Give us your horror story. Okay. So, like I was saying earlier, a lot of these memories are very fractured. and They're, like, fragmented. So, a lot of this movie, I remember through images more than like where I was. I feel like I was probably at home. It was probably seen through on TV because it was never in theaters, which I actually didn't know. I thought it was a film until like mm-hmm. when, when we first discussed it. But what's, I remember watching it with my dad because I rewatched it with him a couple nights ago and he remembered it more than I did. I only remember the ending and that's what really fucked me up was the idea of stuff not being black and white. Because when I watched films as a kid, storytelling for me was like, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And this one felt like, and, and of course what comes with that good by good guy, bad guy dynamic is that at the end, it's usually a happy ending. The hero triumphs over the villain and everything's happily ever after, right? But then when I saw this film, it completely spun that notion for me. And this film came out in 99, so I was seven years old. And this idea of someone being taken away and 
the unfairness of it all. Like, how could this be the way that this ends? I felt like I was, I was tricked. Like the rug was pulled out from under me and it really scared me because again, death is just something that I can't wrap my head around. And this felt like a way that their kid was dying and they couldn't do anything about it. And it's just so tragic. So I think this was the beginning of not so much a literal fear of like, Oh, that monster looks scary. It was more of this like deep seated fear in my stomach where it's like a stomach churning feeling when I know that something is not going to end well and I can't do anything to control it. And that's the feeling that scarred me. It was more of that feeling. And when I watched it this time, I still felt that at the end. And do you remember how old you were when you saw it? I want to say I saw it when it first came out. So I might have been seven. But but then again, I think I feel like I was too young and I feel like I wouldn't have seen it. But, you know, it's like a it's based on a Stephen King and those especially their the TV series that they would make with his um, novels and his stories, they were always a little bit more lighthearted. Like this was very much PG-13. So I think I might have been convinced like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not going to be like someone getting their head chopped off or like a very visceral monster. It's more of like a mystery movie about a storm. And then when I saw it, it, it just, I guess I was sold the different experience that I got. Like I thought it was just going to be like, Oh, this is friendly for me because it's not killing left and right. But then it, it ended up being something much more psychologically traumatic. It's interesting. Cause when, when you, when you chose this and I, I, I had not, I had never seen it before. I, I, it came out in 89. I would have been 18. I remember it coming out because unlike most of the, uh, Stephen King miniseries that came out in the 90s. This one wasn't based on any of his books. He just had written a screenplay for it. And then a book came out afterwards of the screenplay. But like, I remember I remember mm. this one coming out. I remember being really burned by most of the miniseries of, of Stephen King in the, in the 90s. Because like, I was not, I was a huge Stephen King yeah. fan. I had read all of the books. And when I sat down to watch like it, and I'm thinking of the, the Shining remake. And then I, I can't remember what else. Oh, The Stand. I didn't like any of them as a, as a kid. And so I never saw this and I, I'm not hundred percent sure. Mm. Normally my, my excuse is because I was in band, I was in marching band. And so we movie TV shows at, at, at nighttime, I couldn't watch because I was in band practice and this was before like DVR and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So like if I didn't catch it airing, I never caught it. But I think this one came out actually when I wasn't in, in band, I think it was like in the, I think it was like in February, maybe. Yeah, February 4th. Ooh, Valentine's Day. February 14th, 1999 is when this premiered. And so I don't know why I never saw it. <laughs> but uh, it, it's this is a lot different than I was expecting. And so when I sat down to watch it, I was like trying to think. I was trying to think, what is the moment that, that, scared, that scared you as a kid? And I was like, there's some kind of horrific things yeah. in the beginning part. But it's really that last 40 yeah. minutes that like i'm like this is some existential fucking dread here <laughs> yes yes and and you know i completely forgot about what what got me this time around was like the that sort of like demonic apparition of the grandmother character or the mother character of the the town the guy who runs the town the town manager robbie's um, mother and the way that she appears and she's like i'm gonna eat your eyes and like 
it's going to be a cycle because in hell, everything is repetition. And just like that idea, I was like, oh, it, got, it gave me goosebumps. But I don't remember that at all from when I was a kid. So I feel like maybe I only saw because I saw that it was three episodes. And so maybe I only saw the end. And I I remember very clearly the marble thing and like how they, they pick the black one, the kids taken away. I also forgot about I'm a little teapot. That, that was something that, that <laughs> fucked me up as a kid. So much so that I just like compartmentalized it because when I heard them sing it for the first time, I was like, <laughs> oh, I remember that. <laughs> and it's so haunting. <laughs> that's that's what Stephen King is really good with, though, is taking and, those, and, those things yeah, that are like yeah. you know, normal, everyday things like singing. Yeah, it's singing that song and then taking it to like – Ooh, demonic, demonic ways. It's just so good. You know, you know that that's like a big trend now in trailers where they take like a rap song or like a modern song and they distort it. And it feels like such a modern trend. But when you look back at this small, I guess, relatively like underseen film in the nineties, they were still doing this. And I feel like this was much more effective. Oh, especially when it's not like, it's not like distorted, but it's actually just little kids, like just in the classroom, just like singing to themselves. And it's like, no, this takes on yeah. a whole new meaning. And then it's when the adults start singing it too, when the older woman in the bathroom starts singing it well, oh, before she drowns yeah. herself in the sink. <laughs> um, <laughs> good God. Um, but I do want to touch on we talked about like parts that scared you. And I was watching this and texted Terry. I had never seen this before, but the whole movie gave me massive anxiety. Like, I think I have a big fear of the isolate, the isolation aspect, I think really freaks me out. So this made me think about movies like 30 Days of Night and Midnight Mass, where these places are very remote, and they're very much isolated from the world. And that scares the shit out of me, like an inability to have access to anything else and like being trapped. And I'm getting anxious just thinking about it. Um, And so with like the added thing of the storm, which... Okay, this is a question I had with that storm. Do you think the storm was already happening and he just happened to use the storm as an excuse or did he bring the storm? Yeah, it's always interesting because it feels like the storm is the inciting incident and then his appearance is like the turning point. But I feel like, it's funny, I never really thought of that, but I feel like he brings it with him. Like he is the coming of the storm. Like he's the personification of the storm of the century, this this uh, life-altering experience that they all go through. And I love that it's set in the storm like that and in, in on an island that's like very isolated. And like that made me think, like, are there other towns that got hit by the storm before them that were like had the similar thing with this guy? Like I was just thinking about like those implications too. Yeah. Like if it's him – did he sweep? Because they had the TV. Like, I was like, oh, did this just hit them out of nowhere? Like, in my head, it hit them out of nowhere. But I, when I hadn't seen it, but then he watched it. And, like, mm-hmm. it's on TV and everyone's talking about it. So, like, everyone's aware. It's not just them getting hit. So, I was like, those are, like, kind of, like, really scary existential cosmic implications if he's, like, sweeping yeah. across the fucking east part of the United States. Yeah. Just, like, decimating children. Like, collecting a pack of children from yeah isolated well, families he up roanoke right in 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 this like he talks about yeah. roanoke and that yeah. and that's sort of like the 
the idea is that, of course, he wiped out that town or they left and did probably what ended up happening to most of the people living on this town after he came through and they, you know, ended their lives and did horrible things because of living with the guilt. I'm assuming, like, it's never really fully explained whether, A, a they didn't agree to what he wanted or, B, they did and then, you know, things happen sort of like they happen in this movie, which, like you said, Jonathan does not have a happy ending. <laughs> But I I do want to talk about that story yeah. when we talk about the ending because I have – I had a reading about this. But before we I, – I, I don't want to get there yet. So um, what I love I, – I, I do have a question. Are you – are you familiar with Stephen King's work? Did you did you watch a lot of Stephen King or read any of his books growing up? Or I've never read any of his books, but I watched it when I was a kid. And that's another one that scared the shit out of me. But it was more because – Tim Curry just looked like a fucking psycho <laughs> with the with the red hair. Um, so that was more of a visceral okay. kind of fear. And I don't remember if it okay. was before or after this one. But like I was saying, I saw Misery like in my later years. I saw Carrie like a month oh, ago wow. for okay. the first time, which is nuts. Um, but yeah, I... I love. I like Stephen well, King. The reason why I was asking is that the the opening of this of this uh, miniseries is so Stephen King like epitome of him. It's like the folksy vibe that he creates. He's really good at creating sort of like a small town mm-hmm. ecosystem, and the the kind of way that like the opening narration where he's like life out on the islands is different. You know, with that. <laughs> I, yeah. the main accents in this movie are just ridiculous but he's talking about how we can keep a secret if we need to we kept our share of them in 1989 and people yeah. who live there keep them still like it's just it's very folksy very uh rural down home kind of people and when we get the opening shots of like the small town and it's like you see the fishermen on the docks it, it's just it's so it just screams classic king and i i love that this is a very rugged um, rural, isolated community of like mostly a lot of blue collar people in a lot of ways. And you have like the constable that is also running the grocery store and the police station is part of the grocery store. Like it's just these little tiny details that I think Stephen King does so well in creating like a tone for, for his uh, books or his movies. What I love about like these movies are the characters, but I also feel like Stephen King kind of writes the same characters over and over again. And that's not always a bad thing but it's funny because this made me want to watch <laughs> the mist because <laughs> it's kind of similar like they're all stuck in one location for the most part and the mist has monsters but not this is not to downplay the storm of the century i did enjoy it but it's just and again the mist is later but it's just funny to see how stephen k has a very specific type down to the accents which in this movie all over the place. Tell, no, tell me, really tell me about it because look, this is a very region specific movie, and I'm mm-hmm. from Miami, so the snow is like. When I first saw this film, I had never seen snow. I don't know about wow. being isolated. Like I'm in this crazy melting pot in Miami, and the accents. I don't know about the accents. So like, I I, I noticed there were inconsistencies, but I don't know. Which one was bad? Which one is good? Are they all bad? So just tell me about that. I mean, they're all pretty bad. <laughs> like, let's be. <laughs> I, I think that accent in that in, in Maine is very difficult to nail. Uh, I we've seen like a lot of movies that a lot of Stephen King movies. Um, I'm particular. I'm thinking back to like Pet Cemetery. Um, mm-hmm. The both the original and the remake. It's uh, yeah. like there's just there's like some sort of I like. Hope. 
it's just a very difficult accent to nail. And some yeah. people sounded like they were trying to, to be from the UK. Yeah. Some people had like almost an Irish brogue to them. I'm like, okay, I, I, I get it. You're making for television. You probably didn't have a whole lot of time to shoot this four hour movie, but like, just so all over you know, there was one, the, the one who and her hair turns white. Oh she, yeah, her yeah. her accent. I was like, oh. is she from Australia or like where? Where is yes. she from? <laughs> and it changed throughout yeah. the entirety of yeah. the. And again, four hours you're on. It got stronger mm-hmm. towards the end too. I feel like she really yeah. leaned into it at the she end. She got her time to shine. But, she had to hit so, that accent. <laughs> she did. So um, so I used to work um on a show called Northwoods Law, which was about um natural like basically like wildlife cops oh, wow. in maine um so i became intimately <laughs> familiar with the maine accent because all of these men were just like backwoods maine dudes who loved hunting and animals and it was incredible because their accents are so funny but they're not as intense as in this movie they're not like obviously older people had it but like it's just such a weird maine itself is such a weird place like it is just up in the north doing its own thing being strange like there's a reason why Stephen King writes about it like it's a very strange place and I never actually been there but after watching that show for multiple years I feel like I know Maine kind of and they're all just they live in the woods and they just kind of do their own thing and the accent is unlike anything I've ever heard before but they just overdo it in movies and stuff because you're like they're really trying to commit to it um I don't actually know if they say <laughs> a ton in Maine. Like, I don't actually know if that's they like a do thing. A lot of Stephen I don't know. King books, so let me tell you. They sh- well, I guess he yeah. lives in Maine, so like he He's would know. It's just funny how much they're like, all right, everyone, really lean into the Maine <laughs> accent. <And> they're like, <laughs> but it depends on which movie too. Not every single movie that's set in Maine has the accent, so it's so funny to see who decided yeah. to commit to it and who was like. We can't do it. Like, there's no point, which I appreciate when people are yeah. like, it ain't, it ain't happening. You know what was a good surprise for me this time is Julianne Nicholson, uh, because I didn't know who she yes. was as a kid. But now I'm like, what? That's her. And, and her performance, I think, was the best one, aside from Andre Linoche, like the antagonist. But those two were like movie, movie acting, and the rest were kind of like TV acting, in a sense. yeah. No, it absolutely. She definitely is the. I think the the kind of uh, the best the best part of this this movie for me. And I I was staring at her. I was like, who is she? Yeah. She was so young in this, and you don't realize that you know this is the person that was in I Tanya, yeah. Black Mass, and Kinsey, and August, Osage County, like all of these yeah. these big movies. And she looks so young. She was in The Outsider. That's the last thing yeah. I remember seeing her. And Mayor of Easttown. Mayor of Easttown. Oh yeah. Yeah, she's a mayor of Easttown. Oh. And she she's in she's this so uh good. she's in this movie from Colombia called Monos. She's like this mm-hmm. the American woman who's like being held hostage by these Colombian kids on the mountain. And I just so I was just like at the end they kind of abandon her character and I'm like why why did she just disappear like she didn't have any close-ups in the town hall? And maybe it was just that idea of like she she's a big actor now that I wanted to see more of her. But 
I did too. I thought she had the the more in, most interesting character yeah. in this town because like one of okay, so there's a couple things I want I want to hit on. First of all, Mary Beth, you talked about how uh, this definitely has like some, some missed vibes. This feels like in a way a greatest hits <laughs> of Stephen King uh, things that he wants to do because yes, there is missed vibes. There is like the the idea of almost like. I was thinking for some reason Salem's lot with like mm-hmm. this sort of like isolated t- town thing that gets taken over and we're focusing on all the, the different people. Mm. Um, obviously like this isn't Stephen King, but like midnight mass I feel is pulling from this, but you also have in the character of um, well, the, the main character, gosh, Mike, the main antagonist, I'm sorry, the antagonist guy. Uh, oh, and Andre. Yeah. Andre. Leno. Yeah. So, he reminds me so much of Leland Gaunt from Needful Things. I don't know if you've ever seen Needful Things or read it, but it's it's a it's, this will probably sound a little similar. It's about this town full of people who have secrets, who have dark sides, and this person moves into the town and opens up a shop and ends up like blackmailing people yeah. to do horrible things to each other because he knows their deep darkest secrets. Like he, the, this character of Andre was giving me so much Leland Gaunt vibes. It's a little bit different because here he's literally puppet, puppeting them yeah. and like just spelling out their secrets to public. But the character reminds me so much of that character and the story kind of the overarching story kind of reminds me a little bit of, of needful things. So I think that this, if you were to watch this movie and then start to like watch other Stephen King things and be like, Oh, this reminds me of this, or this reminds me of this, this reminds me of that because I think that this sort of, in a way, felt like a culmination of his writing up until that point. Yeah, even in terms it, of like the things he discusses, mm-hmm. even it, where it's like you see the personification of people's fears, particularly Robbie, mm-hmm. the town manager. He sees, he keeps seeing his mother, and I just thought of yes. it when one of the kids sees like a, a werewolf. One of the kids sees mm-hmm. their their um, dead dead mother or like their father. And, and it's just like the personification of fear. So yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And misery is like, they're stuck in this snowy okay. town and yeah, it definitely feels like a mix, a mash greatest hits version. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I do want to, I want to stick a little bit. This is the other part I want to talk about. I want to stick a little bit with Julian Nichols's character because um, of all of the like, there's a lot of secrets that get revealed. And of course hers is that she had a secret abortion and that becomes like this driving point between uh, Bobby and her. And I, that whole thing, I don't know. I don't know if it was handled very well. What did, did, did either of you like, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's like treated like it was made in the nineties. Like they're even like, like the marijuana thing, they're like, yeah, he has to be on drugs, and I'm like, why are they treating, <laughs> why are they treating it like it's an opiate or like it's like right, heroin, it's no heroin like, yeah, it's like oh marijuana, yeah. and and it's just like, like then they kind of like brush off the priest being a pedophile, and and we're like right? supposed to sympathize when he's like reciting Bible things, and I'm like, dude. Like fucking no. die, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of there's things that definitely feel outdated. Like the 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 thing about them beating up a, a gay man, and then at the end they give him the money. Like that, it was just okay. weird, like contrived things. I gotta talk about the gay yeah, aspect yeah, because please. let me tell you, Stephen King 
you know, he, he, ha- his heart is in the right place. Yeah. He has been writing gay people into his story from, from uh, the earliest times. And in fact, as a young queer kid growing up without like seeing a uh, representation of myself, yeah. um, I actually found more queer stuff reading Stephen King books than I did any other thing. And that was like, even though they weren't necessarily the best representations, they were like at least some kind of representation that I was like, Oh, there are other queer people out there. Cause I grew up in, in Alaska in my mm. first, like first eight to 10 years of my life. And then we moved to the, the center of Nebraska where horrible things was happening to gay people at the time. Mm. Like boys don't cry is a movie based on true events that happened in Nebraska, you know? So like there's, there's that aspect to it. And so I think his heart is in the right place, yeah. but God <laughs> damn it. Am I tired of him using queer pain to like further his story? Yeah. And so this, when I got to this aspect, because this is again, talking about things that are explored and other things, he did this in it where like, it was like the opening of, of it part two, yeah. you know, the, the adult storyline with that character. There's a lot of times where he uses queer trauma to, um, I don't know, move the story along sometimes or be to be that sort of like emotional gut punch. Yeah. Moment. But it's like peripheral too. It's always like it on is. the side. It's like not an actual character, but it's like, in this case, it's not even a character in the film. They just talk about the character and the guilt that this white straight dude has because he beat up a queer guy before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a sort it's the same kind of story we also saw in the lens of um, of it, where the the character of Henry Bowers and it is like is 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 a closeted gay dude who isn't able to like express himself, and so he goes and beats up people and he takes his anger out on other people. And there's that moment in here where you know Andre is teasing the one guy about like, oh, I think you wanted to like rub your, run your hand through his hair and all that kind of stuff. And so there's that I don't know. Yeah, there's just the the way it explores it. I'm like, I wish that there were more positive representations of queerness in Stephen King's because that seems to be a well he goes to an awful lot, even including um, I was I was on a podcast talking about um, his crime novels that he did the end of watch series, Mm. and they turned it into a TV series with with Mr. Mercedes with like some of them. But even there, like there's a a queer character who is not good. And the only other time queerness is is talked is is because someone goes to jail and he is raped in Mm. jail. And I'm like, this is the only representation of queerness in this story. And then we have this where the only representation is either a closeted guy that is beating up on someone or this poor guy that lost his eye, poked his eye out. He, how he poked the nasty queer man's eye out with the cane. And I'm just like, okay, I get it. Nineties. But this is also like a bad time for talking about queer violence because you had Matthew Shepard the years before. I'm sorry, I can go off on like a whole tangent about yeah. this, but it really bothered me watching this as an adult. It felt almost like he he is like I feel like it comes from a good place, but it feels icky in the way that even like Friends does, like the way that Chandler and Joey are like, mm-hmm. ew, gay, like we just kissed each other, yuck. Like, no homo. Yeah, like very like Ace Ventura when he's like like gagging after kissing like accidentally kissing the trans woman. And it, it just mm-hmm. felt like very that's when I was like, Yeah, this is like in the nineties. Like this is this is a nineties film. Yep. Yeah. Well and like going back to her character where she's like when he's like it was half my baby. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like, 
You know what? I'm glad that she got that fucking cane and beat the <laughs> shit out of him. Like, bye. He's just like, it's just, and again, like a very 90s thing, but we, st- you still kind of see it now and guys yeah. are all shitty and they're like, well, I wanted to have the baby. And she's like, well, you're cheating on me with yeah. somebody else. Like, why would I have a baby with you? Like, it's my decision. And he's like, it was half my baby. And I'm like, you can't. You don't split it in half, my friend. But it's really messy if you do. I mean, i i did I did appreciate the fact that that guy did get his ass beat for saying things like that. So you know, there are those antiquated ideas here, but there is like pushing back against that, which I which is nice because I don't really feel like the '90s was it was not it's the '90s, but still not the most like yeah. progressive era when it comes to reproductive rights. Like it was getting better, but like you know, um, so. But yeah, that was just a scene. And I, again, she has this like incredible monologue and she just like goes, like she has this incredible moment and I'm like, she's the best <laughs> yeah. actor in this whole yeah. thing. <laughs> she is. And again, no offense to everybody, but she's. Oh, like, I was, I was like scared because like I said, I didn't remember if she was even in it. So I'm like, if she fucking dies right now, I'm going to be pissed. Like, So I'm so glad that <laughs> they, know. they flipped it and he got killed too. Uh, yeah, that was a good, good yeah. choice. Yeah. Yes. A very good choice. Okay, so I do, uh, <laughs> I have a question about Andre's motive for this, uh, because here's the thing, and I will talk about this probably a lot more when I'm giving my, my final review, but like, there's an awful lot of this movie that doesn't feel needed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for him, Most. for his plot. I'm like... Okay, he sets up when he finally reveals, give it to me and I'll yeah. leave. Give me what I want and I'll go. I'm like, what do you want? Just <laughs> yeah. fucking tell us. <laughs> I was so yes. mad about that. I was like, look, they can't give you that shit if yeah. you don't tell them. Like, they're not mind readers. <laughs> Stop writing it in lipstick and blood all over the town and having people kill themselves. Clear yeah. communication. Yeah. Clear, concise communication could have avoided so many deaths. For real. <laughs> I mean, obviously he's sadistic and kind of a huge piece of shit, but it's just very funny that he's like has the threats and that everyone's like, what? It's, it's just what like. What do you want? What do you it's want, like buddy? the biggest, <laughs> biggest case of plot blocking I've ever seen. It's like, give me what you want and I'll go away. <laughs> and they keep presenting it like if it's a scare. And I'm like, wait, but we've seen this 20 times already. And then they walk into the room and it's uh-huh. written on the mirror. And then they walk into another room and it's like yeah. written on the guy's shirt. And I'm like, yes, we know. But then- tell, tell us. <laughs> And when Angie comes back and she's like all, you know, older and her hair is all white, she's like, we got to give him what he wants. <laughs> I'm like, motherfucker, what do you yeah, want? Yeah. And, the- <laughs> and then she's finally like, what the fuck yeah. does he want? And he doesn't tell he's anybody. Still, he doesn't even tell the people who come back. He's and still like, like, I'll tell you at nine. <laughs> he's like, I'll tell you in an hour at, <laughs> nine, at 9 p.m. Well, and what I was thinking and a note I took is I'm like, okay. Why is he waiting this long to tell him what he actually wants? Because it seems counterintuitive to a dying demon. Like, he makes a comment <laughs> about how he's a sick demon. And yes, he has, like, a thousand years, he says, until, like, so this is, like, like a lifetime in the future. But I'm like, <laughs> dude, you're dying. Yeah. I get that your lifetime is different than the human's lifetime, but come on. Yeah. Fuck is ticking. Yeah. And it just felt like... If I was a diamond demon, I'd be like, give me your fucking kids or you're all going to die. Or he'll just... You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> 
the the MacGuffin was like he can't just take him. It just felt weird. He's like, I can't right. just do it, but I can punish you, but I can't just take them. <laughs> you know, I can make them all fly in this kumbaya, like flying in the sky thing, but I can't. I was like, why didn't he just take Davy at the beginning and just say, get out of town? <laughs> they lost me a little bit at that point. Yeah. When flying through the air. I was like, what like in Care the Bears. hell is happening? <laughs> Care Bears <laughs> Yeah, that lost me. But, like, I feel like it would have been even even more successful if they just had him killing people without, what I like, saying what he wants and having yeah. a threat. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like having him, like, be sadistically picking off the town one by one and then finally being like, oh, I actually yeah. have something I want from you besides this, like, countless lives would have been a little bit more meaning like effective for me rather than just, like, what yeah. the fuck is happening? Like, why aren't you? Yeah. Why? Yeah. So. Well, and I also think that like there's a, a market shift in that last uh, episode, I guess, of the the miniseries, where all of a sudden it's like, this is what Stephen King really wants to talk about yeah. in terms of like this morality story. And I just, I, I kind of wonder if it would have been better suited if, to like establish that from the beginning and then watch the town kind of like turn on each yes. other. Because like, I, I just, I don't, and maybe that'd be a little bit too mist-like. I don't know because that kind of happens in the mist. But like. I don't know. I just I felt like this is the story you really want to talk about, and we took two and a half to three hours to like get to this <laughs> yeah. moment that is like the heart of it, and is actually quite. I thought I okay. I thought the last hour of this was quite enthralling. I thought the last hour, and I thought the beginning introduction to the characters in the town was really interesting. But I just by the time we were like killing people, and it's like give me what I want. I'm like okay, can we just get get to what you want finally? I log, <laughs> and then when we got to that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I logged the, the exact time when he tells them. <laughs> it's at three hours and 25 minutes is when he tells them what he wants. <laughs> and the movie's four hours and eight minutes. So that means there's less than an hour of the part that's like the best part of the movie. And like you're saying, I feel like movie. that would have been the best because then it's like, who who has more say, the pedophile or the robber or the person who did mm -hmm. this? And then you start to really get into the dynamics of like who has more value, who has more say based on their sins. And then it's really like nailing down on these themes, but it just kind of, they just like breeze over that. And it's just about someone like drowning themselves in the sink, which is like good images, but it just feels like it's not as heavy as it should be. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Now, okay, I do want to talk about this this ending, though, because, like, watching this now, I I think this movie, this might be a reach. I think this movie is about climate change. Mm. Because. Okay. Okay. So, the beginning of the movie establishes this freak storm that's, that's crossing the nation and is going to settle over, uh, you know, Maine and is going to bring death and disaster the whole beginning part when 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 he is when andre has killed martha poor martha poor martha and her walking cane um or he kills her and he's watching tv and it's people selling uh natural disasters as like some kind of sign from god so there's this religious bent to it that you know this is the end of times but you also have a guy who is going to live for another thousand years so his like threat of, of death is thousand years is like way in the future. You have him coming to this town and you have him finally laying out the stakes of like, okay, you can either give me someone 
uh, so that I can continue on and keep doing my horrible thing, or I can just kill all your kids. Now, they have a decision. Yes, I get it. They're families. They have kids. They don't want to get rid of their kids, but they are ignoring generations down the line because eventually, if people were to stop the cycle, he's going to die and he's not going to have someone to give it to because he can't take them but for himself. Someone has to give it to him. And so you have people selfishly giving up, selfishly, again, I say this as someone that is not a parent, but selfishly, you know, keeping their kids in order now, this generation now, so that ah, the next generation will take care of it. We'll have what we want to do. We'll keep doing what we want to do. But the next generation, maybe they will take care of it. And so he keeps like spawning this endless thing of like killing people until the end of time where he's just going to keep doing it again. So I, for me, this idea of like this massive storm coming through, this long stakes, generation stakes of this guy in the future and the people being more selfish about the now and worrying about next generation taking care of it. I feel like this is about climate change. It's a good, it's a, it is a good take. Cause okay. it, like you were saying earlier, um, Mary Beth about the, like, do you think that he brought the storm? I feel like that's the whole thing. It's like, he is the storm in a sense. He is like the thing that's coming over and destroying, destroying these towns, like in the past, like with Roanoke. So I feel like there is a connect. There's, there's definitely a connection, even if it's not about climate change, it's just the, the two things are one sweeping over these towns, but it works. And no one wants huh. to like do anything. And the thing is, is that like what, what really kind of drew that point home is that, okay, so they, they give into his demands. They give up a kid. The kid's gone. But then people start killing themselves. Yeah. And they start like, so it's like they did something bad in a way because now he's going to prolong himself and have, when he dies, he's going to have a protege that's going to continue on and doing the same horrible shit. But like, they don't get a happy ending either. You have people splitting up. You have people killing themselves. You have like, all of that kind of stuff happening. So really what did they gain? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that town is fucked. Yeah. I, and I forgot that stuff too. Like all of yep. them killing themselves mm -hmm. and being depressed like that, that hit harder this time around. And like, they, they really, it's just like a town full of regret almost. And the only one who got out was the father of the child who went missing. Yeah. federal marshal. You know what I also thought was <laughs> was weird like was on. that they were in San Francisco. It's like they wanted him to see how they were doing yeah. it. And the kid had like a jack like he had the, the, the jacket yes. on and everything. And I'm like, what? It's petty. <laughs> yeah. Petty little bitch. Yeah. She's like showing up with, with <laughs> yeah. the, the kid and the jacket as if they've been living there. Like yeah. just living next to the, to the yeah. father. I was like, oh, that's like a, a little sting to yeah. that end of that. And humming the, t the song. Yeah. And then he hisses at him. <laughs> yeah, that was... That's one of my least favorite aspects was like the hissing thing and they kept doing it. And I'm like, yeah. the, the eyes were it cool. It reminded me of like the Predator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like very narrow. The fourth fangs reminded me of like the Predator thing. I was like, okay, this is... It's, it's made for TV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't look the greatest. But I also feel like in my head, I kind of love when someone's a monster and you don't show them looking yeah. like a monster at all. Like it's even more threatening because they're just like, they just appear like a, a regular mm -hmm. person and there is this something sinister to them that I think 
is scary. But again, miniseries, they probably needed to one to add like an actual monster to make it appealing and to watch this it. Is so great, I get Stephen it. King, but... Can we have like <laughs> some kind of monster thing? <laughs> <laughs> can we have this man with fangs for like two seconds every couple of when minutes? What I was thinking about. Just to let everyone know that he's <laughs> yeah, a monster. Because I mean, this was again not even like on cable this was like you know broadcast television you can't you can't really show a whole lot particularly in the 90s because yeah. this is again 1999 we're having columbine we're having all the violence we're having like all that discussion about violence in media so you can't really show a lot of what happens to people and so i think that maybe that's like the well we got to have some kind of stinger so let's give them predator fangs or something it's like because like they couldn't really show anything because it was such clamp down at that time yeah this was like very it's funny because I, I i agree i think when he was wearing the beanie and the blue jeans he was much scarier than when he turned into like the Wishmaster guy um yes uh, i was like please stop showing like this this uh what was it like a power rangers villain it, it reminded me of like ivan ooze <laughs> really or something was. you know ivan ooze yeah. yes <laughs> Put like the pointy hood on his cloak, like, where it sir, looks like he like like a cheap, like a cheap version of the of the um, Grim Reaper. Was <laughs> like his pointy yeah. hood. A wizard in a D and D campaign right now. Like that's what he looked like. You know, you know what movie? Floating down with his cane. That again took this me out of it. This movie is like, I've I've been thinking when I saw the movie, it reminds me of a movie called The Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's like the same sort of premise. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to give us one of your kids. In a sense, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Except to get, these are not shooting <laughs> <Yeah>. the kid. <laughs> Wild. Spoilers for killing of a sacred deer, everybody. Um, oh my god, can you imagine? But like, okay, did you go ahead? No. Oh god, if they had no, no. I was just thinking, can you imagine this movie with like the the sort of like affectations? That the character actors did in Killing yeah. of a Sacred Deer, <laughs> <laughs> the deadpan like emotionless dialogue give me what you want and i'll go away that would be so funny but i mean like (laughs) when they were giving out the rocks the stones did everyone clock that it was going to be mike mike's kid like that was like assumed right like a given fairy saddle from the very beginning i'm like yeah "Yeah, he wants this kid and he is it's rigged you think it's rigged that that's a a question too because they even bring it up and he's like no it's fair but i felt like they're definitely punishing Mike for, first of all, for standing against the town, um, just because Andre feels like he's petty like that and sadistic. But also, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the way that he was enthralled with him and like gives him a kiss at the beginning, which was yeah. fucking weird. Oh, I felt like he wanted that kid. I I'm still like ambivalent whether it was on purpose that it was oh. mm. it was Rafi that was chosen, but I I'm pretty sure that. Andre was sadistic enough to pick him, especially because Mike was the one fighting with the rest of the town. He was the only one who was against it. So I'm like, he's definitely fucking himself over right now. And like, I didn't think Andre would want the kid from the cat in the hat anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That that kid, I recognized him too. Uh, Spencer Breslin. Yeah. 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 He was, wasn't he? Oh my gosh. That wow. Cat in the hat. (laughs) yeah uh, wild uh, yeah so i i was thinking I, I thought it was a little ambiguous too but then 
Um, by the end of it, by the time that he is showing up with the kid with the San Francisco jacket, and it's obvious that they lived in San Francisco near him, I was like, oh, he's just petty. So, yeah, I yeah. I personally, I do think it was rigged. Do you think so? Yeah. Beth, oh, yeah. Oh, thoughts? 100%. I was like, this guy is just an asshole. And, like, they've been at odds the entire <laughs> movie. And, like, the kid, like, again, he hugged the kid, kissed the fairy saddle on his nose, and, like, ha- and he gave, he appeared to the kid and gave him the rocks. So I feel like they already they already established they had a connection. I thought he was just gonna fucking steal the kid. I didn't even think he was gonna give them a choice. I thought he was just gonna yank, like say he's mine now. Like sorry. Yeah. So I yeah sorry I wasn't surprised. Um, which is like they were trying to do the tension with everyone opening their hands with the rocks, and I was like, we all know, we all know it's gonna happen. It's <laughs> yeah. fine. Like you guys don't have to do this. Um, also, I wouldn't have waited. I just would have opened my fucking hand. I would have been like, no, we don't all have to fucking go in line. Like, But again, I know it's a movie. Wrap that band-aid off. I know. That, I seriously just been like, I'm not playing these games. Yeah. We can all open them together. You know what so. You know what would have been a more interesting ending is if, if it was one of the other random parents who got the black one, and then Mike is sort of left with the trauma of having his kid and he was like i was right and none of you listened and then they all start blaming each other i just thought mm-hmm. i wanted more of that i wanted more of mm-hmm. the effects after and it kind of skips like this was when i discovered about what true pain is and i'm like wait i want to see the town hall like immediately after yeah yeah it, exactly 100 percent. i just i wanted more of this last as you said yeah. what 40 minutes about <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I wanted more of that because that was like the more most thematically interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they probably like nineteen ninety nine people. Rated R. It does. They're yeah. like probably cable nineteen ninety nine audiences might not get like that excess might yeah. not get that much, but it was still pretty intense for a cable miniseries. Like it was still pretty bloody yeah. for the broadcast. Like, even yeah, exactly for broadcast. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but do we want to wrap this up and give it our rating out of five? Sounds good to me. All right, Terry, how okay. many, how many, hold on, let me make sure I get this, the, the wording, the wording right on this one. Um, how many wildly inconsistent main accents out of five do you give Storm of the Century? <laughs> uh, okay. I, like I said, I sort of hinted at this. I think. I love the beginning of this. I love that how Stephen King is able to set up a town. I loved all of that. I love the mystery. I love the kind of what the fuckery is going on. The middle section I thought was a slog, unfortunately, because it's just like I, at that point when he's saying, give me what I want. I'm just like, okay, can we finally get to <laughs> what I want? And then I, th- I was so enthralled in the last about, I would say about an hour of the, the, the show that I was like, this is really good. And I think somewhere in this movie is a good two hour, mm. maybe two and a half hour movie. But there's like a lot of fluff that I just, you needed to have three nights. Stephen King gave you three nights. You know what I mean? So I, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm struggling with it. I think, I think I'm going to give it a three overall. I think the last 40 minutes um, is probably a four, maybe even a four point five, because it really grabbed me. Uh, but with the rest of it, I'm gonna have to give it three wildly inconsistent main accents. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I agree with the three. I think that 
Well, one, I wonder if it wouldn't feel as much of a slug if it wasn't, if because people were watching it as a show. You know what I mean? But again, it and didn't, nights, it didn't yeah. have to be our show. But that's okay. Like, that's what we have. Um, I, you know, I got really anxious watching this movie because it tapped into, like, that fear of isolation I have. I thought, again, I thought the ending was really interesting. It lost me a little bit with the kids flying through the air. Um, that was, like, some of the effects, like... <laughs> Really just kind of knocked my ass down. But I did love a good nihilistic broadcast. Like, I love a good nihilistic movie. And I was glad that they kind of kept to that. And Mm. I love the characters. There's some really great characters in this. And really despicable characters, too. Which, again, King is good at. So, with all the good and then the bad, I think it comes out to a three for me. Um, But, Jonathan, you have the final word. How many wildly inconsistent main accents out of five do you give Storm of the Century? (laughs) Well, I agree with both of your points, but I think there are some great set pieces and scare setup, particularly like I mentioned the the dead the dead mother character that was yeah. like the apparition. I love that stuff and the things that she was reciting about eating his eyes, mm. just the idea of death and like being pulled into death and getting a taste of it, like this woman with white hair got. She's like, I never want to go back there. So there's some good scares. I love Julianne Nicholson's character and her performance. I think Andre Linoge, which is like a very ridiculous and funny name. I feel like his performance was awesome. And just the character was like, it felt grounded enough where I believe it and I would be scared of him. Um, And it felt very nuanced in that way. But I do think, you know, obviously it's very hokey. The acting is like overdone at points. A lot of, stuff that they say that you don't need them to say and very long transitions of people in snow and like going on (laughs) on in their cars and i'm like this could have been like two hours easily so for me i will give it a 3.5 i'll give it the 0.5 extra just because of nostalgia's sake and the way that it affected me as a kid and i feel like it was a more nuanced look at horror that i didn't know existed and for that reason, I give it the extra 0.5. Hell yeah. Understand that completely. Uh, okay, but thank you so much, Jonathan. Jo- my God, let me start this again. <laughs> thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us to talk about uh, Storm of the Century and your, your amazing movie. Where can our listeners find you? And do you have anything that you can plug or want to talk about? Yeah, thank you. It was, it was a really fun time doing this. And it, I think it's a great way to talk about horrors, like pinpointing one specific movie. So it was a good time. Um, you can find me on Instagram at John Cuartas, or you can find the Instagram for my movie at Heart Can't Beat. And it's available on Shutter, Amazon Prime, and Peacock, and some other streaming platforms. So yeah, hope you, you all check it out. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Storm of the Century? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm McGeely Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at scarredpodcast. And please don't forget to give us a rating and a review and make sure you're subscribed. Please. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>